everything we saw in the supply chain crisis of last year has forced all of these technology entrepreneurs who were already working on how do I move a container autonomously from point A to point B? What 5G, what communication systems, what data links, what LIDAR, what AI do I need to make that happen? How do I move a package with a drone from point A to point B? All of that was in in process. This just causes it to accelerate because now the now the gaps have been exposed and the more you can create these autonomous networks, the more efficient we will be going forward, regardless of whether or not we have another pandemic. And you know, the more we'll be able to accelerate the movement of, of goods. Welcome to this episode of The Climb. I'm Michael Moore, joined by my co-host, Bob Wirma. We're especially excited today to welcome Mike Berry, president of Hillwood, a Perot family company. Mike, welcome. Thank you very much, Michael. This is, uh, this is fun. Love it. Well, we're excited. We, we've got so many things we want to ask you about. There's, there's so much exciting growth and momentum going on at, at Hillwood and Alliance, and, and we'll dive into that. But before we get into the business side, uh, I think our audience wants to know about Mike. And so maybe take us back to like childhood and give us a couple of anecdotal stories about how you grew up. Um, ultimately ended up at Vanderbilt, uh, which I believe was a place you met a pretty important roommate. And we can we can get into that. Uh, then TCU, uh, then Harvard, and then and obviously your career. But you know, you grew up. You married Marilyn. You've got four daughters. Like, give us give us the background on you. Great. So could uh, I could make it a short story or a, or a long story? But I'll try to give you the the highlights. Uh, so I'm Fort Worth native, which is great to be able to build my career and and work uh, you know in the in the environment that I do in my own hometown a lot of a lot of people in the in the real estate business would move across the country to do what I get to do in my own hometown so it's a it's a very unique opportunity and I'm the poster child for it's not what you know it's who you know as you mentioned um, Ross Pro Jr who's the chairman and founder of our company Hillwood Ross and I were Fraternity brothers at Vanderbilt, right. which is where we uh, got to know one another, and then through just the good fortune of both of us being Texans, Ross being from Dallas, me being from Fort Worth, our circle came back together uh, after college. But I grew up here. Uh, my passion for real estate evolved or began uh, by being around my grandfather. My grandfather was one of the original real estate developers in downtown Fort Worth. He worked for a philanthropist and entrepreneur named Jesse Jones from mm-hmm. Houston. Mr. Jones came to Fort Worth back in the 30s and was the, one of the early pioneers of building uh, office buildings in downtown Fort Worth. And my grandfather, very similar to me, you know, I call myself a hired gun. I work for an entrepreneurial family, the Perot family. My grandfather was fortunate to be in Fort Worth and was hired uh, by Mr. Jones. Actually, they were originally in Houston. So that's how he got to know Mr. Jones, but came here to set up the business. So that's really my exposure to real estate was through my grandfather, and I had a passion for it from from him. Hey, um, Mike. Real, yes. real quick, let me. I just want to interrupt just for some folks that aren't, you know, from the Fort Worth area. Maybe like during that time, talk a little bit about what was Fort, Fort Worth then? Like, what was the makeup of the community? What was the size of the community? Because I think that's going to really help us understand to what it is today. Yeah, well. no, great, great, great point. So the hub of business back then, so I was born in 58. I used to go down to the office with my granddad every Saturday morning and he would check the mail and then we'd walk the buildings. So I have very vivid memories of what downtown Fort Worth looked like back then. And really all business of any significance was centered in the central business district. And it was very walkable. Even though the courthouse is where the courthouse is today on the far north end, you could walk very easily from all the major office buildings. Um, and it had... Back then, and you may remember these days as well, of course, you all aren't nearly as old as I am, but the movie theaters were downtown. Mm-hmm. 
And so everyone in the hotels, so the hotels, the movie theaters, and all the office buildings were all strung together along 7th Street and along Main Street in Houston. And restaurants were were there. So you literally could do everything entertainment-wise, business-wise, socialization downtown. I don't really know what the population of Fort Worth was back then, but as I said, every everything's really centered around downtown. Um, and then the neighborhoods, you know, were truly the suburban world. Right. So Ridgely, Monticello, the South Side, those were the suburbs of the day back then. And then we went through a real period of kind of just where, where downtown started to deteriorate. That was back in the day when people pushed outside of downtown and it went dead. And then thanks to the Bass family and their rejuvenation, right. they brought all of those same sorts of uses back to downtown. And it became vibrant again with Sundance Square and, and all the things that they were able to do. And I think arguably today, Fort Worth downtown probably is considered one of the safest yep. and cleanest and still most walkable downtowns in the in the country. Uh, we got a lot to work to do. We can talk about economic development sure. if you want to, but we got a lot of work to do to reignite a job, a new job force in in downtown Fort Worth. But and Bob, you'll appreciate this being in in Chicago. But what year was it that the Leonard family orchestrated having the subway built to where you could get it from an outside? parking garage outside of, of downtown and take the subway underneath up into the Leonard department store, if I remember that right. Yeah, I don't know what year it was, but I used that was also one of the rituals of coming downtown with your grandparents. Right. You would park in the, the Leonard lot, which is over there on the Trinity River, right across from where the, where the Trinity River plot pavilion is today. Mm-hmm. Get on the subway, went in a tunnel, and it would end up in the basement of the Leonard department store. So cool. And as a kid, you know, that was yeah. a huge deal. Right. And then you'd hang out in the, you didn't just go to shop there. You'd go to eat, you got to have candy, you'd have a milkshake. It was kind of a whole experience. You could spend, you know, two or three hours. Yeah. Um, and then you ride the subway back and you get in your car. It was, it was a cool, a very novel mm-hmm. idea. So before we talk about, Vanderbilt, because you know, is that is definitely a crossroad and defining moment of your of your career. Um, just because I'm passionate about this, because I've got two daughters. I mean, four daughters. Talk to us about raising four daughters and just kind of home life for for Mike Berry and Marilyn. Well, I'll give you the short answer or the short description. I'm 62 years old and I'm working harder today than I ever have. <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. You know, you got to taking care of daughters never ends and you know there's a lot of responsibilities there Mm -hmm. and i love it i wouldn't trade it you know the reason i have four girls is i wanted to have a boy but now in retrospect you know when it's all looking back i I wouldn't have traded it my wife marilyn's unbelievable so she allowed me to do what I do and work long hours and and uh, build our business at Hillwood. And she really did the the heavy lifting yeah. of raising our girls. But I got to enjoy, you know, soccer and all this basketball and all the sporting events on the weekends. And she did the 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 hard work during the week. Yeah. And now now I just had, I had two grandchildren last week. Oh my gosh! Congratulations! Uh, you know, very thank you. Very few people get. Two grandchildren born seven days apart, but we did. And the more exciting thing about that is we had our first boy. Okay. So I now have three grandchildren, two girls, and our the last one that was born last Monday was our first boy. Okay. Who, interestingly enough, is named Clay after my grandfather, who I just told you the yeah. story about. So bringing that family, that family legacy back around. Is oh, it, is great. everybody local in Fort Worth? Fortunately, yes. And that's another sort of rarity. You know, when you have four daughters, you would expect that one or two of them are going to end up marrying someone from somewhere else and they'll move away. But fortunately, all my girls, well, three of the four are married and all of them live here in, in Fort Worth. Man, that is, that is very fortuitous. I, with two daughters, I hope they 
they come back home, but um, there's, you know, there's no guarantees. But why I have two daughters is that I really wanted a son, too. Um, But I had a big talk with a man upstairs, and he said, you can keep trying, but you're getting all daughters. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I had had that insight. Um, But I wouldn't trade them for anything. I mean, they just there's there's something about that that relationship. If you've got it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's appreciate you sharing that. Very special. Let's fast forward now into into college life, and you meet your roommate. Did you know it was there a special bond at that time where you thought I might end up working with this guy forever, or how did that matriculate? I mean, we were we were good friends because we were both from Texas, right? And we had a lot of mutual sort of connections because of the Texas roots. But we were so it, it was not a planned roommate then that you just happened to be. No, we were, we actually, when we lived together, we were officers of the fraternity. So we both lived together in the fraternity house. Okay. Got it. We were actually a year apart. Um, I was a year older. And so we rushed Ross into the fraternity. He came as I was a sophomore. He came in his freshman year. And so we rushed him in. So I was older. But if you had known the two of us, just to, to give you the, the ultimate, differentiator ross became president of the fraternity and i was the social chairman (laughs) so that tells you a lot about our personalities back then Mm -hmm. no and so to answer your question michael i don't think anyone would have ever thought that we would be business associates you know for 32 almost 33 years back then they would have kind of had us in different different paths but you know that's been the beauty of our of our relationship is um you know you put those two personalities together and it it's it's worked worked very well no i've 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 seen the two of you in a room before and you can you can feel the energy for sure so so then was it about 1988 is that when you Took on the the job at at Hillwood eighty eight. So I I uh, after Vanderbilt I came back here went into the MBA program at TCU full time two years. That back then it was not uncommon to go straight from undergraduate into graduate school mm-hmm. without work experience in between. Today, you know most people have work experience right uh, before they go back and get their their MBA. But I I went straight through. Ross went to the Air Force and ended up flying F-4 jets in the Air Force Reserve, and he ultimately ended up at Carswell Air Force Base, based here in Fort Worth. After graduate school, I went to work for Woodbine Development out of Dallas, owned by Ray Hunt. Mm -hmm. As Ross began to look at real estate with his dad, and they started buying land north of Fort Worth, which ultimately became the platform for Alliance Texas, he and I started rekindled our relationship because I was here, I was in the real estate business. He he wanted to learn. So we began to meet on a fairly regular basis and he would come by and ask questions. We started talking and it took a long time. As he started to launch the Alliance Airport idea, it took a long time for me to really get comfortable with what they were doing because it was a you talk about speculative, right? It was super speculative. But it was also well supported. You had the FAA, you had the city of Fort Worth, you had the generally the community in support of it. You had a real need for a job infusion because at that time, you know, we had gone through the recession of 86, which Texas was the leader of. We led that recession with the SNL crisis. Right. And then that rippled throughout the whole U.S. economy, but particularly hard here. So we we were very hard hit. And when the idea to build an industrial airport started to emerge and this partnership started to form, people did get behind it, and particularly with sponsorship of the Perot family. So after we had gone through the story a lot and talked a lot about what the strategy would be, I finally said, you know, I need to do this. But so I was still. When did you? 
Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to ask, when did you enter the picture? Like at what point in that whole development, you know, you said very speculative at the time. I mean, at what point did you enter and say, okay, I need to go do this. I see the vision. My first day on the payroll was the day that we broke ground on the airport. <laughs> July 9th, July 9th, 1988 was a Saturday. That is my date of service on the Hillwood payroll. And that was the date that we actually had the ceremonial groundbreaking on the property to build the airport. So I, I was all of our discussions that, you know, led up to my joining all happened before we actually launched. So I got to be there from the very, very beginning. And and so for, again, back to Bob's point, for some of our listeners that aren't from here and, and got to see this being built over time, Bob understands the size of like an acre because he's a hunter. But a lot of our listeners <laughs> may not understand, like, give us the stats and the magnitude of what this was and then what it's become. Back then on on in July of 1988 when we started the total holdings, land holdings for the alliance project were about 12,000 acres and the airport was centered on a piece of the of what is now Alliance Texas, uh, that was probably that that block was about five thousand acres of the twelve, and then the rest of the pieces were scattered nearby, but big blocks. Today it's twenty seven thousand acres. You know, from a scale standpoint, that it, it's not all one contiguous twenty seven thousand acres. It's kind of strings up and down thirty five. We, we cover about twenty five miles of freeway frontage if you count all of our land, but. If you drew a a bubble around it, it, it's an area of about 65 square miles. Wow. So it's the size. It's bigger than than Manhattan. Right. Uh, in terms of scale, um, if that gives you any sort yeah. of analogy. But it's it's also challenging for us because it is strung out and you've got to tie it all together. You get tied together through infrastructure, roadway planning, master planning, marketing and branding. Um, and that's, you know, that's what we've been doing over the, over the years. So back to day one, July 9th, 1988, talk about the, the, the business plan at that time. Like what were you setting out to do? And then how did it, pivot and wax and wane and, and ultimately become what it is today. No, that's that's great. That's a story I tell a lot because it's fascinating how it's evolved. We never really envisioned the breadth of what it would be today. Right. So back then we we're building an airport. It was an industrial airport. There had never been one built in the country like it. Public private partnership, massive runway, ninety six hundred feet, capable of Landing 747 in the middle of a wheat field, master plan for industry. So our targets were aircraft manufacturers, air freight, air cargo hubs, aerospace and defense manufacturers, uh, big maintenance, uh, aircraft maintenance and, and mod facilities. That's We were pretty much isolated on those those industry targets because it, you know, that's what we had. We had a runway trying to get people who needed access to a runway. So we, that was where we focused. And American Airlines was our first big customer. They, this is, I won't take you through the whole history, but long story short, they needed a new maintenance base for the Boeing 767 and 777, which they were just taking into their fleet. They went through a site search around the country or where to put it. We got narrowed it down. We got in the hunt. It, it ended up being Alliance versus Oklahoma City. We were still under construction with the runway, so we weren't even finished and operational. Through a whole series of heavy lifts by a lot of elected officials and us and um, everybody in the city of Fort Worth, we won the deal, and they built a $500 million maintenance base right on on the airport, and that's really what put Alliance on the map. And this whole idea of an industrial airport 
happen around that deal. If we hadn't have made the American deal that early, you know, I'm not sure how the momentum might, might have changed. But but that really put us on the map as an industrial airport. While that was going on, we were also building a relationship with the Santa Fe Railway, now the BN Santa Fe, headquartered here in Fort Worth, mm-hmm. because the rail line ran along the western boundary of the land that we owned along the airport. They had just won a deal with Honda to bring in all of their cars from Japan directly into the U.S., and they needed a a facility on their rail line where they could do the unloading and the make-ready and the prep before they went to the dealers. So we won that deal, and we built a hub for Santa Fe to operate the Honda distribution center. And then right on about the time that happened, they got another deal done with Ford. So we doubled the size of it. And even those are those may not be very sexy sounding facilities, you know, or auto transload on a rail line. It changed the whole view of Alliance because it took it from just being an airport in the minds of industrial users. They began to look at it as a totally integrated logistics hub right how you could do rail air around a big site where you could grow large industrial factories and facilities and the interconnect of all that that we were bringing together is what began to help us expand our platform so we went from aviation to rail and logistics to large distribution centers we did a giant deal with nestle just shortly thereafter And then we did another deal with Texas Instruments for a big distribution and final assembly facility. And then it just started to to mushroom from from there because we had land, we had infrastructure, and we had transportation connectivity. Right. Earlier on in this, you mentioned you guys did a public-private partnership. So, you know, a P3, right? That would have been early on in the days of P3s. Anything to share around that and some of the, you know, I know what some of the challenges are today in that. Was it a, a different? Was that trailblazing kind of for that time? It was, yes, very much so. Um, there were there were not many prototypes out there that time in the in the mid to late 80s, actually. But downtown Fort Worth, interestingly, the redevelopment of Main Street, which occurred about that same time as just right before Alliance actually was done with a UDAG grant, which was a federal grant, urban development action grant is what UDAG stood for. And that was led by the Bass family and the other big landowners downtown. They basically said, look, we'll, we'll do whatever we need to do on the private sector side if you'll fun, if you'll bring the federal funds in to rebuild rebrick main street and that's what so you could call that a really early public private partnership that happened locally ours was a little more complex because we had to we had to shepherd the FAA the state and the city of Fort Worth into this sort of massive infrastructure build um, and the way we were able to get it done, and obviously our sponsorship helps having the land and, and the pro capabilities, right. uh, we basically said, look, we'll, we'll give you all the land for the runways and for all the roadways and highways that we need. We'll front all of the environmental studies and we'll, do, we'll front all of the design and once the package is all put together, we'll give it to you, and then you get the appropriate funding from because a private entity can't take, for instance, we can't take an airport request to Congress in the FAA. It has to be come from a public Got agency. It. So Fort Worth became the sponsor. We gave them the package. It was all buttoned up. FAA approved it, and politics plays a big role in this, sure. as you know. Sure. So back back in the day, and this kind of goes to your question, Bob, can you could you do it today or it's different today than it was back then? We had Jim Wright, yep. Speaker of the House, on one side of the county line where Alliance Airport sits from Fort Worth. We had Dick Army, if you ever if you remember Dick Army, who was minority leader, uh, became minority leader, but he was a Republican. He was on the Denton County side of the line. So we had bipartisan support, which 
you don't get a lot of that today. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> and and you know that really more than anything that led that would that allowed the the funding and the and the and the description of the legislation that allowed it to be funded all got done that way. So we had to write a new code of a new category of airports in order to get it to qualify for the funding because it didn't exist. And then on on State Highway 170, which we did the same exact way, right at the same time, we needed the state and the city. And you had you had Gib Lewis mm -hmm. from Fort Worth, who was the Speaker of the House of the State of Texas House of Representatives. Right. So he helped us push that through. We gave the land again and did all the design. And he got he was able to get the tech stop funding for State Highway 170. And then last but not least, the whole thing wouldn't have happened with Bob Bolin, who was the mayor right. at that time of Fort Worth, who had relations. He was the president. People don't remember this, but at that he was president of the National League of Cities, which is the National Association of Mayors. He was president, so he had national stature and obviously great relationships with Jim Wright, Gib Lewis. And, and Fort Worth was really the glue for all of this because they were the true local sponsors. So, you know, Bob Bowen, Gib Lewis, Jim Wright, Dick Army, he, he, the, the stars were totally lined up. And, you know, trying to duplicate that today is, you know, it's, it's, it would be a different different sort of. I was going to say, you made it sound easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Looking in the rearview mirror, it, you know, but that's an interesting point. I mean, for somebody that's that's been in it and really studied that that crossroads of where politics and business intersect, it seems like the business community would put more pressure. You mentioned that word bipartisanship, and we hadn't had that in a long time, on figuring out how our political leaders on whatever side of the aisle they're on can figure out how to work together, at least from an economic development standpoint, to get things done, right? And the, the public-private par partnership is a perfect example of that. I mean, if you've got to go do it all on your own or you've got to rely all on a bond package or whatever and not a mix of the two, it just it slows the whole process. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's so I was at a lunch meeting yesterday with the new president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and several different businesses, local uh, leaders around the table, and you know that that's the biggest challenge for business and industry today is bridging this chasm that keeps getting wider between the republicans and the democrats and corporate america is caught also in this sort of chasm because until re i mean you've now seen companies come out around these voting bills that are happening and take stands but because of the world we live in, it's very difficult and uncomfortable for companies to engage because they have they have shareholders. They right. have their own agendas, their own initiatives that they want to get done. And when you engage in a, another issue, so we've just got everybody pitted. Uh, but you're right. The, the way it should work is that we ought to be able to get – because I believe business should lead most, you know, most big, a lot of big initiatives in this right. country, not right. everyone, but sure. I, I really believe in the private sector. I'm kind of think, you know, more capitalism creates more jobs. You create more jobs, you create more taxpayers, you create more taxpayers, you fix a lot of problems. Exactly. But, um, you know, how we sort of collapse these barriers that are there today are, you know, that's our biggest challenge. And I, there's just not... There's not an easy answer. I I do, I you know, in, in a perfect world, you would get a group of CEOs that were aligned on really pushing, you know, some big agendas. And if you could get enough of them together and enough of, of business unified to really make a push to try to convince the elected officials to come together and, and move the ball – I think we could go somewhere, but it's back to what I said. Everybody's got kind of their own agenda they're trying to protect, and it's very hard to get get that sort of 
cohesion mm-hmm. uh, now, and and we need it. We need it. But back then, we could get it. Yeah, it could get yeah. done. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, you know, it's I, Mike. I had I was having a conversation with one of my clients, and I was asking him. I said, "Hey, I would love for you to come on the podcast." And they're in a very regulated industry, and his comment was. Bob, I can't do anything right. I can't say anything right. No matter what I say in my business, it's going to be spun against me. And so he said, I just, I got to kind of keep my hands out of anything or any of my views, because if I say this, I'm in trouble. If I say this, I'm in trouble. It's just not going to be a good thing for me. Exactly. And that's unfortunate. It is. And, but that's the, that's, you just, you just describe the condition that, yeah. uh, that a lot of leaders are in today who are running businesses. And, you know, They've got their shareholders. They've got activist group who are, groups who are watching them every day. But people forget they also have, you know, the larger companies have thousands of employees who all have a stake. Right. And so when a when a company engages in in any sort of initiative like that, that you know, not only does the CEO get potentially lit up by the media, the activists, or shareholders, but his or her inbox fills up with employee commentary. Right. And I think most business leaders will tell you that it's most important for them in running and trying to grow any business that you got to, 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 to keep employee cohesion. Mm-hmm. And so once you're, once you start dividing your people, you know, that's when you say, look, life's too short. I got to run a business. I got to build cohesion. I got to keep culture. I got to keep productivity. And I can't afford to begin to politicize my workforce. Right. Um, so that's, I think that's a lot of what well, in, slows in, things down. No, you, 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 you laid that out beautifully. I mean, I think that's one of the, the passions that Bob and I had for starting this podcast was that, you know, at the beginning of, of COVID, you're going to try to find truth. And it's nine different opinions to based on which news channel you were watching uh, or just little tidbits of information from Twitter or whatever other news feed you would try to get some information from. And so the whole point of this is to bring on business leaders like yourself to just tell it like it is. Right. And it's a different world. I mean, if you were look at like Elon Musk sent out a tweet, what, yesterday about what he's trying to do down in Brown. Brownswood? No. Brownsville. Brownsville. I, I guarantee you property prices have quadrupled down there in 24 hours, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's just unbelievable. By one tweet. Like, no, it's how does too it- late. Even before that went out, right. it's too late to go buy real estate too in Brownsville. Late. Well, he's bought a lot of it yeah, already. He's bought right? a lot, but he's also, he's putting huge, and this is the beauty of you know what private capital can do. I mean, he's committed to Brownsville. He's going to grow this space industry in Texas. That's his that's his his central place where he's going to try to grow it. And he knows in order to recruit people, he's got to make Brownsville a, a good quality city to come to. Right. So he's putting a lot of his own money in in into the city and everybody's going to benefit yeah. at the end of the day. And, and we so, ought to have more of that. Right. That exactly. So is it it's sort of tilted now where the, the the private entrepreneur has to go put in their own money to get something done like that. I mean, right. Is that where we are now? I mean, hopefully not in every case, right. but I think in certain cases, and it's back to the way we were able to make alliance happen, even though it was much, the politics were much different then. Mm-hmm. Had the had we not put our capital out yeah. front, it would have it would not have happened. So I think that's you know uh, how about Apple's announcement a few days ago 430 billion dollars right that they're going to invest across the country i mean that'll you know that's another sort of example of you know if if the private sector can really step out and commit to do those things Mm -hmm. think of the think of the energy and and economic activity that creates and all over the place no you're exactly here and it goes to your point that you said earlier of how do we just get some some of these phenomenal leaders we have across the country to to come together to be involved in some of these bigger decisions because they've obviously done tremendous things. They want to see not only their company but the country flourish. So 
what's what's holding that back? I mean, it just it seems so simple, but it's clearly not. No, and unfortunately, I think it's just we're in this environment where no matter what you do or say, if you if you if you step into an issue that's got controversy around it, the people who are going to shoot at you get the headlines and the and the good side of what you're doing gets gets pushed aside and so then all of a sudden it becomes controversial and and the ability to get it done the probability of success goes goes down yeah yeah it's unfortunate so because i know this is a big topic years and so i want to dedicate some time to it um just because you get such keen insight uh with everything going on uh, up at Alliance and just Hillwood in general and, and your vantage point, just the, the word innovation. And let's let's tie that to our economy today and where we're going and, and transportation and logistics. And I mean, give us some insight from the way you see it on really where we're headed. Well, specifically, we're very focused on the future of mobility. And when I use the word mobility, it's really all things trans that fit in the transportation basket. But our, our focus is primarily on the freight side of it because that's the world we we live in, or that's our our core business. But you know, innovation. Just to hit on that word, uh, because it's kind of the hot buzzword right now. Um, I mean, we've been doing innovation for 30 years. Right. Building Alliance Airport was innovative, even though it was just a concrete airport. It was innovative. Even if I go back to our, the roots of our our company in in Ross Pro Senior, you know, he was the pioneer and the the original founder of the whole information technology services mm-hmm. business. No one was doing outsourced information technology services until he started EDS back in the 60s. Um, and so our our culture is all about innovation. But this form of innovation that we're working on right now and that we see, I think, is one of the most exciting. And I think the pandemic really, the, one of the positives from my view is the pandemic with everything we saw in the supply chain. And so now I'm back to freight and right. mobility innovation but everything we saw in the supply chain crisis of last year has forced all of these technology entrepreneurs who were already working on how do i move a container autonomously from point a to point b what 5g what communication systems what data links what lidar what ai do i need to make that happen how do i move a package with a drone from point a to point b all of that was in in process. This just causes it to accelerate because now the now the gaps have been exposed, mm-hmm. and the more you can create these autonomous networks, the more efficient we will be going forward, regardless of whether or not we have another pandemic. And you know, the more we'll be able to accelerate the movement of of goods from what you know whatever they are. So. We've been fortunate to have this front row seat. We right. work with Amazon. We work with Walmart. We work with FedEx. We work with UPS. We work with BNSF Railway. We work with Bell. They're all doing work in this area. How can we create products or how do we can we in, in, interconnect those products into our supply chain business so that we, we're more efficient and we can move product better? And I think we have an opportunity in, at Alliance and we're 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 very focused on it, but I think North Texas has an opportunity to be. We could be the Silicon Valley of mobility, technology, innovation, if we you know if we do it right. All the all the infrastructures here, all the momentum is moving our way. Um, we've just got to you know we got to go grab it. Right. So we're now focused kind of on all pieces of the ecosystem that you need to to become the silicon valley and we're working with the oems so the the builders of these autonomous trucks and the builders of these drones we're working with all the technology folks from you know the 5g 
providers to those that build the infrastructure that the 5G needs to run along, um, the AI people, um, all the other technologies that need to be knitted together. And we're trying to put in place this. It, it's it's more than it's not an incubator. We're really trying to create a working laboratory and not so much trying to attract just startups. We're using the, the big guys because I think that the advancement of these technologies will happen faster if you're let the Walmarts lead, let the Amazons lead, let the BNSF railways lead because they're the they're the ones who are going to use this technology faster. Right. If you can get it plugged into their their machines. So we took kind of the opposite approach as someone might trying to stand up an incubator to bring a new industry. We went we went to the corporates and said let us give you tell us what we can do to create a platform for you to accelerate the advancement of these things that you need to improve efficiencies in your business and it's working wow. um so now all of the a lot of the companies that they were already testing and looking at and talking to and working with are now coming and they're standing up use cases with these big corporates to begin to show them how they can do it on a you know, on a, in a scaled manner. So I want to ask this because you, you made this, like what stuck out to me is you said the word exposed and you said these things were exposed through the pandemic. And maybe even if it just relates to, as you said, that freight business, why do you think they were exposed now as opposed to, were we just going at a clip? Everyone's kind of happy how things were going. I mean, what created that exposure during this environment specifically? I mean, it was primarily the shutdowns. So, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of our product and a lot of the components that go into the products that are built here come from Asia. Mm -hmm. And when we went into shutdown mode, that flow was, that, that chain was broken. And... So when I say exposed, we we all realized how reliant we were on products or raw materials or components that come here for our consumption from the Asian marketplace. Um, so that was really, to me, that was the biggest thing that exposed these weaknesses. And we didn't have the capacity in this country to replace that in short order. You know, we've we've already lost a huge amount of our manufacturing power, which, you know, is a whole nother topic. That, sure. You know, we need to be doing everything we can to bring manufacturing back to the U.S. We lost it because of our labor competitiveness, but the labor cost differential is, is tightening now. And the transportation and supply chain and logistics systems that we have today help make you know, our competitiveness, if we could regain it as a manufacturing center, help put us back on the map. So, um, but anyway, that's, uh, to me, that's, th that was the biggest thing that exposed it. And then when all these factories domestically were then shut down as well, because of that, you just quit, you quit making stuff and you just couldn't fill the shelves fast enough. I, I just, and, and the reason I asked that, and was kind of a leading question, because I figured you were going to go there a little. I don't think a lot of people understand the gravity of what actually occurred and what that means for business, for their communities, for job. You started to see this and you started to see the littlest things in the supply chain starting to break and then exposing our we or not our weakness, our reliance on, you know, like you mentioned, China, for example. I don't know how we educate some folks more on what that potentially means for us as a country, but I think that's a very important piece that came out of this that I think, you know, you'll look back 25 years from now and how we respond as a country now is going to really determine what the next 25 years of the country look like. Totally agree. And hopefully more Americans woke up to our dependency on that global supply chain when they couldn't get toilet paper, right? When they couldn't get just basic, you know, basic commodities. Not to mention, so that luncheon I mentioned with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce yesterday. So we had Toyota and AT and T were both represented at that luncheon. And I think we're to to help the case a little bit. The shortages, the the shortage isn't over. The supply chain gap is still 
acute mm-hmm. in a number of areas. And to hear the automakers and the technology folks say, well, we can't deliver this because we can't get the parts. Um, and then, you know, in our business, just construction materials and the shortages there. And so we're still living it. And I think it's going to be, it's going to be a good, you know, 12 plus months for the whole system to get back up and running. And hopefully, if we continue to feel pain, people will, you know, begin to do real meaningful things to try to put us back into a a mode where we can operate as more of a a full service economy instead of just a service economy. Well, it's a... Go ahead, Johnny. I have a question. Yeah. Um, I want to narrow it down a little bit to Texas when and tail on to the exposing inefficiencies piece. We all remember the snowstorm from a couple months ago. I think the pandemic woke a lot of people up as to how good we've had it and to how quickly that can be taken away overnight. And I think that the snowstorm exacerbated that even more with Texas, just how unprepared we were for six inches of snow where Bob was making fun of us saying, hey, you guys can't handle a few inches of snow, but... I mean, we we were helpless in a lot of places around Texas. Is there, is that something that Texas specifically needs to focus on, or do you think it was just it's one of those once in a hundred year deals where we forget about it, or what? What can Texas specifically? That I mean, that's another another great example, completely different set of circumstances, but you know where the system was exposed. So you use the pandemic. Goods quit flowing into the country from Asia. The snowstorm power quit flowing into the lines because our infrastructure was freezing up. And so, yes, I think the same exact response needs to happen with regard to the power grid and a lot of things in Texas. But, you know, you got to go, you got to go really aggressively into the whole power issue and fix it. And, you know, I worry about things getting politicized. So I'm watching the legislature right now and how they're dealing with it and how they're crafting the the action plan. And it's moving too slow for me. I mean, they should have been implementing significant improvements already now. Um, and we've got, it's, it's very complex. It's right. like education. Go, go try to get into public education K through 12 you once you start pulling it apart there's so many interconnected things well you know the power grid failure was a, is a combination of a shift in focus financial and economic incentives a deregulation that happened years ago restructuring of 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 our whole power mix in the state, uh, a lack of winterization, but but the reason there was a lack of winterization is that there's no financial incentive for those power generators to spend the kind of capital that you need to spend because they they've got they've got got capped economics. Right. So it's you know there's five or six big drivers that all kind of came to you know the they all crashed together and that's what happened. And you can't fix it overnight. I'll tell you, there's a great movement underway that's being led by a man named Tom Luce, who's a longtime leader, Texas leader, great Texas leader, and longtime member of the Perot family's business team. And it's called Texas 2036. Mm-hmm. And you, you've probably seen some of the things they're doing, but they're very focused on the whole organization was established because the 2030, 2036 will be Texas's bicentennial. Right. And someone said, Tom said one day, he said, we've got, we're, we're, we're losing our strength in infrastructure, in education, in resources that we need to continue to grow and be successful and be Texas. So he put together this movement and the power grid piece has been on his big initiative list, just as water resources, just as transportation resources, just as education have been kind of his big buckets of things we need to 
attack. But you, we got to we got to put a lot of money and a lot of energy and a lot of focus behind it because you can't move the ship overnight. I mean, these are like decade long right. plus fixes, and unless you get totally committed to it, you're not going to. And and the next exposure will be even worse. So I think people, but but the problem with all of this is we Americans, Texans, Fort Worthians, it doesn't matter. We have short memories. Right. And, you know, you go through these crisis things and you experience them, you suffer a lot of damage and heartache, and then you kind of get back going and your life gets back into normal and you kind of forget. And so your engagement goes away and you move on to the next thing. So you need people like Tom Luce and many, many others out there pushing the ball, but you got to write checks to support them, what they're doing so they can keep going. And you got to roll up your sleeves and put a little sweat equity in along with them and help them out. And, you know, everybody's busy. So you got to. I think you're right on that. I mean, our our short term memory might be the, the, the great collapse that, you know, that finally gets us because. And you hit on so many different things, whether it's a, you know, any of these ecosystems, let's call it, whether it's education, politics, economics, free trade, logistics, they all wax and wane over time, which I think is probably healthy. But when you see something like the pandemic or the the ice storm and you, you just see how close we are to that tipping point. Of maybe no return, right? I mean, if, if you're a historian and you go back and look at all of the great nations and regimes and powers, at some point there's that tip. And it's going to take a very concerted effort on our part to realize that the globalization that we help create also needs to have a lot of attention paid yep. to it, right? Yep. Or, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, it that that more than anything in the last year has hit me like okay you know i've always been raised to leave everything better than i found it and what are we doing as a society locally state level federally to to ensure many more generations to come get to continue the the benefit of of a, <laughs> a short term memory being okay right because we've had a long, long run. I mean, there have been blips. Don't don't get me wrong. You mentioned, you know, financial crisis in the 80s. We all know what happened in 2001, 2008, et cetera. But we do. We, we're so resilient. We bounce back so quickly. Are we missing something there? I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. That may be a whole nother podcast, Bob. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I look at, you know, we're talking about, you know, your hometown and we've hit on it before. I mean, I look at Chicago, right? I'm sitting here in a city that I completely love that is very much on the decline, very much at that brink of, you know, there's so many challenges here. But there are a lot of people that that love this place and that love Illinois and Chicago. And we've had some folks come in here and trying to do some things and they've gotten completely pushed out for whatever reason. And I think it's going to get really bad here before it gets good, unfortunately. But I want to, you know, I want to raise my kids here. I I love this city. I love this place. It's my hometown. It means so much to me. And, you know, to your point, Mike, I think it's so interesting is a lot of people say that, but you got to go get your hands dirty and you got to roll up your sleeves and go to work with it and get a group that's going to do that and make some noise and, you know. I always say, well, I would love to do that. Well, when am I going to find the time, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, that's, you know, that's the thing. But it's also, we've become a great society of knowing how to bitch. Right. But we've we've not been great at stepping in and and committing to fix whatever it is we're we're bitching about sure somebody else's problem yeah you go fix it yeah, yeah. no i agree that's, that's, <laughs> that is a major issue so and, and you know who knows where why we've evolved to that stage there's so many things you can blame it on i mean the internet the you know the this social mediaism just mainstream mediaism right. 
kind of this tone of negativity always out there as opposed to positivity. It's just, it, it's just kind of, it, I hate the trend line that we're on. You just, you need positivity and you need people back to kind of business leadership, how they can, how they should be more engaged in trying to help bridge the political chasms that are out there. You also need, I think, business to exude positive messaging Mm -hmm. whenever and whenever possible, which is, in my opinion, all the time. Right. And, you know, I get to work with a, a guy, but Ross Pro Jr. is like the most positive guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's pure Texan, pure American, pure patriot. And even, I mean, negative things that are presented to him, he has a unique way of putting a positive spin on them. And, uh, you know, just we need more people to do that. Agreed. Yeah, you've, you've mentioned... Ross Pro Jr. a couple times for our some of our audience that may have the the short term memory uh, challenge. Can, can you share just a little bit with us? Because I know you got to spend a lot of time with him. Ross Pro Senior, maybe some anecdote. I mean, just such a unique businessman. Did so many wonderful things. Obviously, had a political bug in him as well just share with us some some anecdotes that most people might not know. i mean to the point i was just making about positivity yeah the ultimate positive encourager cheerleader you know the ability to rally employees to a vision or a cause or an initiative i mean he was unbelievable always pumping people up he had and, and this really didn't come into play during my era of being in the in the business, but this was in the EDS days, he had this big statue of Superman and still sits in our headquarters today in Dallas. But whenever someone would make a big deal or have a huge accomplishment, he would move the Superman around the office <laughs> and put it in front of their office. So they <laughs> they great. had Superman for for a day. And you know, the things like that. He was just constantly encouraging people and recognizing people and pumping people up. So, I mean, that's, you know, from a business standpoint, I think that's why he was so successful. Mm-hmm. He was also very creative um, and, and entrepreneurial, obviously. I think from a patriotic standpoint, he was arguably maybe one of, maybe the most supportive private citizen of the armed forces, right. all branches of anyone who's ever lived in this country. And most of the things he did, people don't even, never even saw. If you come over to his, we built um, what we call Legacy Hall, right. which is kind of a a museum. It's, it's, it's a presidential quality museum, truly, of all of the things that he accomplished in his life. And there's, most of it is dedicated to his relationship with the military. And there are, things in there that that are just i mean you go in there you just go whoa you can't even you you just have to come see it Mm -hmm. um but he had so much respect from so many people um around the around the world uh for things that he did and he always supported every initiative the one there's one in so this you've got this giant library legacy hall and it goes on multiple rooms one little space on the wall of Legacy Hall, there's a handwritten note, which was actually typed out, but from Steve Jobs. Really? Who, it was typed out, and he delivered a video birthday message for Mr. Perot on his, I think it was his 70th, 75th. I can't remember. I should, I should know that because uh, I was there. But anyway, he delivered a thank you to Ross Perot, and in in his thank you, he said, "Apple computer would not exist today were it not for you." Oh my gosh! Wow! And and that and that awesome. and that that tribute from Steve Jobs takes up, you know, probably a twelve inch by eight inch space in this entire museum, and here's the founder of Apple giving credit to Ross Pro Sr. for his success. But pretty, you know, incredible. 
Bob, next time you're in town, we'll we'll go over there and check. It, it's truly, it's better than a museum because it's it's so centered around somebody's life and all their accomplishments. But it's so well laid out. I had a a meeting over there years and years ago, and quite honestly, as as excited as I was about the meeting, I didn't really want to go in because I wanted to stay in the museum and yeah. check it all out. You yeah. could spend no hours. days in there. Yeah. And then, you know, on the kind of the lighter side, not lighter, but, you know, he ran for president in 1992. And if you followed that period, he became a Saturday Night Live regular. Dana Carvey <laughs> perfected Ross Perot. Oh, yeah. And so every Saturday night, there would be a Dana Carvey skit yep. about Ross Perot. Well, so he saved all those clips. I mean, he, he thought it was kind of funny. <laughs> right, right. And so we now have, there's a there's a video monitor in the museum with all of the <laughs> Saturday Night Live clips. So you can come in there and, and just punch, you know, one up after another and watch them. And they're hilarious. God, that's great. And then also <laughs> another thing that he did uh, during that, you may remember as well, he was famous for the charts and graphs. Mm-hmm. He was very concerned about the debt, the U.S. debt. And he, which, you know, the things he was saying back then are still the problems we have today, Correct. except they're, they're just escalated. But all of his infomercials, he kind of created the infomercial, the political infomercial. He bought these 30-minute blocks of time, and he would get on on TV and give people an education, a basic education on U.S. economics, and he had these charts and graphs, and he would say, see this, see this. And it was, you know, if nothing else, I think he brought to light a lot of uh, very important fundamental economic principles and challenges of the country that we we, still, we didn't fix any of them. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, what would he say today? Gosh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I agree. No, thank you so much for sharing that. That was That was exactly what we were looking for. So, Mike, is your is your thinking in the future for you, your career, your family? What's what's next? You know, five or ten years of that journey look like for you? I mean, I've been thinking about it a lot, Bob. You know, I'm sixty two. I'll be sixty three next month. You, you kind of start to think, where are you in your life cycle, and what do you need to be doing? But I'm quite frankly, I'm having so much fun right now. I, you know, I don't really want to stop what I'm doing. And yet at the same time, you want to build an organization that's got longevity and sustainability. And in order to do that, you got to grow your next generation leadership. So it's it's one of those unique periods where I still, you know, I might be 62. I feel like I'm about 32. Right. So I'm, I'm, you know, I've talked about I talked about the mobility innovation thing. I'm really, really um, enjoying that, and I'm really committed to it. And so I think I could, I could kind of focus the next several years on leading that effort, and that has a lot of things associated with it. That's got a venture capital piece to it. That's got a, a other, you know, that'll spin off into other technology initiatives. So I think you, we, we can build sort of a whole business strategy around that. I've also got a passion for Fort Worth. So I'd like to find some ways that Hillwood slash Mike Berry can do more things in core Fort Worth. I mean, we're, we're a huge part of Fort Worth right now, but we're not in the core of Fort Worth in an active way. So I'd like to do, you know, focus on maybe some opportunities here but you know they've got to be unique and they've got to be differentiated from everything else that's going on there's a lot of great things going on right now so where where they make where it makes sense i talked about tom lucy's texas 2036 that's really something i'm passionate about i don't have the time to commit to it right now but tom and i are close and i've told tom you know put me on the road i'll go out and speak around the state to different business groups or community groups about the importance of that. So I'd love to help in that regard. So th- those are things. And then, you know, family, uh, 
you know, you got grandkids, so that kind of changes your perspective a little bit. You like to spend more time, more time with them. Yeah. Reflection is a powerful thing. Yeah. It really is. Well, I think you're you're thinking about it right. And um, you know, you've you've earned the the right to reflect. This this region, this state mobility uh wouldn't be where it is today if it wasn't for your hard work. So we're incredibly appreciative of how much time and how much of your life you've you've dedicated to making this a better place to live. So really do appreciate that. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks. We you mentioned something earlier in the podcast uh that is actually a perfect segue to the last question that we always ask. And I knew we were going to come back on this. It was too perfect. Too perfect. You, you teed <laughs> up. Is this the surprise question of the day? It, it, no, it's it's not a surprise. But you, you mentioned something about uh, Ross Pro Jr. being your roommate at Vanderbilt and the saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know, which is a great saying. We spin that around a little bit, and you were getting into it in, in reflection here, but but we say it's not what you know, it's who knows you. And so if you think about this podcast as a medium to communicate a message, whether it's to your family or the employees at Hillwood or whatever direction you want to take it, what do you want people to know about Mike Berry? You know, I spend a lot of time talking to younger people, whether it's interviews or through my work at TCU or other opportunities. I mean, the one thing I tell people all the time is try to learn something new every day, which you know, means a lot of things. But I, I think you've got to always be listening instead of talking. You've got to know your customer, whatever, whoever and whatever business you're in. We all have customers and constituents, and you got to really understand what what they're thinking about and what they're doing. That's the only way you can provide good service in that regard, which really doesn't tie directly in to learn something new every day, but you got to respect everybody else's opinion, mm -hmm. at least be open to listening to that. If you, if you have that kind of as your driver, learn something new every day, you expand your mind. Right. And the more you expand your mind, uh, the more creative you can be, the more you can contribute to society, to the community, to your business, to other people. So that's kind of my 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 core platform Love that. advice, which completely ties back to innovation, which we spent a lot of time talking about today. If you're not constantly listening and learning something new, how do you innovate? Right. That's right. So. That's right. Well, this has just been a fantastic hour. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate yeah, thank your you. time. It was a ton of fun. I didn't thank know you. I didn't know you were going to drag me quite this deep. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was fun. Thank you. I enjoyed it. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Climb. If you enjoyed the episode please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.